Welcome to Chit Chat Money. This is our Thursday deep dive interview where we have on an analyst to discuss a single stock. And today we have on Bob Robotti. He's the founder and CIO of Robotti and Company. He's been investing in the industry for a long time. And you're going to you're gonna be able to hear his expertise and just overall experience when you listen to the interview. But it was a lot of fun. We're talking about sub C7, but he does kind of get right into it. So do you want to give a brief description of what sub C7 is? Yeah, I want to tease this and say this is the by far the best interview we've ever done. Uh, even if you're someone that's been on the show, you're going to listen to this and think, all right, yeah, this guy knows this business inside and out. And what is it? Sub C70. Probably have never heard of it. If you're listening, I'm guessing 99% of you have not heard of it. It is a global leader in offshore projects and services for the energy industry. So think oil and gas offshore, wind offshore, stuff like that. So they make offshore possible for the big oil giants and the big energy giants. So it's an energy company, uh, but not the energy companies we think of. It's more of the energy it's a supplier for the energy business and they have engineering expertise. He goes through all the other details. Uh, so much information. You might have to listen to this one twice. Uh, but I, I, yeah, I, it, it really was that good. All right. Before we get to the interview, we want to talk about our exclusive sponsor. I've got a new, uh, I've got a new way to tease this. So first of all, if you don't know, Seven Investing, they're our exclusive sponsor. And I've said before that they have research on more than 200 plus companies. So I went ahead and kind of just broke down the math with the code money on the annual, you get $100 off. So it's $299 for the full year. There's research on more than 200 plus companies. So for each deep dive, it's worth, you're basically paying $1.50. And I can tell you firsthand, having been a subscriber for a year, that these are worth more than $1.50 per deep dive. You're learning a ton about the businesses and there's going to be more deep dives throughout the year that you have it. So I really think it is worth the investment. You can uh, use our code money. Like I said, get $100 off at checkout. Use the link in the show notes. Without further ado, let's get to the interview with Bob Robotti. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Okay, welcome in. Today, we are joined by first-time guest, Bob Robotti. He is the founder and CIO of Robotti and & Company. And we're going to be talking about sub-C7, but I also want to get more on your background because you've been in the industry for a long time. So let's start there. When and how did you get into the industry? And then what's kind of the genesis story for Robotti & Company? What inspired you to start it? Um, so, uh, so I've been in the business almost 50 years. And that's what it was. I graduated uh, 1975 Bucknell, a degree in accounting, came to New York, worked for a public accounting firm, became a CPA, uh, you know, in that process, learned the, uh, accounting, the language of business. You know, it's a key, uh, key integral part since we are bottom up stock pickers and therefore financial statement analysis is a critical part of uh, understanding the historical information to give a view into the potential future cash flows of the business, which are the critical element in valuing any business. Uh, I was extremely fortunate because uh, the accounting firm that I was with audited a number of uh, legendary investment advisors, uh, you know, the 
probably the largest involvement I had was with uh, uh, auditing Tweedy Brown. And uh, Tweedy Brown, of course, uh, you know, many of you may not know, actually, was actually next door neighbors to a firm called Graham Newman. And that's Ben Graham of Graham Newman. Oh, wow. And uh, he decided he wanted to go to the south of France and read literature because investing was a grind. And so he did that. And when he shut down his shop, you know, Warren Buffett went back to Omaha. Walter Schloss walked into Tweedy Brown's office, as did Tom Knapp. And so the Tweedy people, you know, are kind of a direct descendant of Graham, Ben Graham's business. Uh, and in that process, the client they picked up was uh, was Buffett. And so for Buffett, they probably accumulated most of his interest in Berkshire Hathaway. So that's kind of the root and genesis of uh, that firm. And so clearly value investors since before that phrase was probably popular and known. Uh, and then I had another client of the firm was Mario Gabelli. So I worked for Mario as his CFO and was a shareholder in the company when he was first starting up his business. And uh, it was great because every day he'd have a morning meeting where he'd go through his favorite idea. And so that's what it did. I had a three-year executive MBA program taught to me one-on-one by Mario Gabelli, and he paid me to attend the class. I didn't pay him to attend the class. <clears throat> so all of that, you know, <clears throat> uh, drove my interest in picking stocks and kind of that's the thing, the passion that I have and finding the firm because I didn't want to be his CFO anymore. I wanted to pick stocks on my own. So therefore, no one else would hire me. So I had to start my own business. And so in 83, we started the firm. Um, and so that's what we do is we do all our own bottom up research. You know, we're dyed in the wool stock pickers and uh, we've been doing it for an awful long time and have had a lot of experience. And of course, the post financial crisis period was like really great experience because it was difficult to outperform the market doing what we did during that period of time. So therefore, right. further learned a lot. Yeah. It's, and uh, we want to talk about sub C7, but you gave us some notes beforehand and kind of about your guys' philosophy and all that stuff. And I think it's good context for why you're invested in sub C7. So, you right. know, how are you guys, I guess, positioned today? And what are your thoughts on just, you know, it's, it's tough to do any sort of broad, you know, macro stuff is, is, you know, we, we all know it's very, very difficult, but what are your thoughts on the environment today as someone who has a lot of experience within the industry? Right. And that's what it is. I guess in 1976, I invested in a, an offshore oil service company called Atwood Oceanics, an offshore drilling company. So that was my first investment kind of in uh, the there we go. <laughs> so therefore I've been in it you know, and, and I've seen the industry over time. Uh, and it's a critical element of our understanding and knowledge. And, you know, you never know, obviously, what the macroeconomic is going to hold. Uh, but, you know, we, I think we have a reasonable understanding of the dynamics of what happens. Um, so, that, so that's it. Um, so, and that's what we did. So initially when I started to invest, the Tweedy Brown was really known for buying net networking capital stocks. And so therefore fundamentally cheap stocks. Um, and in that process, that's what we started to do. And so we bought really cheap stocks. And then over time, what happened is some of those stocks did really well. And of course, then you go back and you figure out, okay, so which are the ones that do really well and why did they do well? And what those were, were companies that tended to be cyclical businesses going through difficult times. And then therefore in that process, the, the outlook for the business becomes negative and therefore investors flee and the stock trades for significantly less than what the business is worth if it survives the process and comes out the other end. There were, and then critical elements in that success were, who were the people who controlled it so therefore, who's allocating capital when a business is going through difficult times has a huge impact on what the opportunity is set is when it recovers. 
And then the other one is identifying businesses that really have differentiation. So there's something about that company that's different than the other players in the industry. And that may even be, you know, good ownership management that therefore is opportunistic when there are times that you can invest capital and buy things for a fraction of what they're worth. So we regularly invest in companies that are cyclical businesses. Uh, and, you know, we tend to invest in them when the cycle is negative. And it probably gets worse before it gets better. And so therefore, we're frequently in a stock too soon. And so, you know, that has its own kind of risks. But the critical element is understanding and getting more conviction about the business. The business continues to move further along to its recovery period. The company frequently becomes a better competitor and increasing its earnings power, even if that's latent and isn't manifested. And so therefore, those things kind of grow over time. So looking for businesses like that, that really end up being, we, we, are, we are really not value investors. We're growth investors. That growth in many ways really is recovery of a cyclical business that potentially has a significant long runway of opportunity. And then I'd also say the longer the business has been bad, the bigger the runway and the better the runway is because that process of difficult times means right-sizing, downsizing, consolidation, and the remaining players pretend, you know, are really tough mutters and really have competitive advantages. And if you really identify the right kind of companies and the right businesses, the competitive landscape is pretty narrow. And so therefore there's an extended period of time of growth in those businesses. So, so it sounds like you're describing some of the characteristics of the company we're about to talk about, which is right. sub C7. So let's get into it. This is probably a company most of our listeners are unfamiliar with. So what does sub C7 do and where do they operate? And so uh, don't feel bad if most of your listeners don't understand what the business is. Most investors don't know what it is. And so that, to a certain extent, I'd say that it creates some of the opportunity because it isn't obviously going to pop up on people's screens. <clears throat> so what it is, is, uh, is an oil service company. And of course, uh, let me stop right there because I perpetuated a, a misnomer and a misconception. It's really an energy services company, right? And that's two elements I'd emphasize. One of them is the oil business is frequently given that label, but it's really an oil and gas business. And that's critical because uh, you know there's, there is definitely controversy on the topic, but natural gas is a a fossil fuel that has a lower carbon footprint than clearly does coal. The availability of it is, there's a lot of it. Uh, it's interesting because it takes time. So the natural gas part of the business is a budding part and always historically has been part. Of it. So it's a, a gas and oil business, but more importantly is you know, all energy today is kind of becoming interrelated. And so therefore it's not just oil and gas, you know, it really is our renewables. And so, therefore, that is part of the equation, and that's part of the energy deliver uh, that's going to come that we need. And that's what I'd suggest. I'd suggest the world is short of energy in really all its forms. And so, therefore, renewables clearly are something that it will have a growth, growth, uh, great growth pattern in front of it. But the fact of the matter is, when you look at energy today, right, maybe 10% of it comes from real renewables, and that is, you know, um, wind and solar. Uh, and you can't grow 10% fast enough when the aggregate demand for energy continues to grow. So we're looking to moderate the growth in energy, but in across the world, developing parts of the country, particularly, there's an increasing demand for energy. And there's a small component that everyone says we should grow. And the other component we, we're, we've, societal pressures are, have moderated and actually shrunken some. And so for we've at this intersection where you need energy and you need it and you need reliable energy and you need economic energy. And so those things, that means that there's an extended period of time for fossil fuels to be part of that equation. 
but an integral part and an opportunity, we think. All right. And you talked about all the different types here. It's not just oil. Um, they are exploring renewables. I think any listener will probably understand, you know, offshore wind, and, and that's a big part of kind of, I don't know, it's a, it's a big theme. It's in the news a lot. How big of an opportunity is it for subsea seven? And how do you think about that as an investor right now? Yeah. Well, uh, well, subsea seven is interesting from an oil service point of view in terms of how big an opportunity that really is for it, given the nature of the yeah. business uh, that it has. And, at, and, and of course they've done things management and, and the board and capital allocation have been critical to position them to take advantage of that opportunity. <clears throat> they used to have an interest in a joint venture they own 50% of. The partner in it was a Russian private equity firm who probably 10 years ago was anxious to sell. They were opportunistic in buying it for four times, five times EBITDA uh, when there were two vessels. One was brand new, therefore needing limit, limited capital to continue to remain in the other one, which was recently upgraded and therefore in good condition. So you had a business that wasn't going to require capital because it had a modern, efficient fleet, and they bought it for four times pre-tax cash flow. Uh, when that happened, and, and that's what it is, the pieces of equipment, not only they in their core business, they install and decommission offshore platforms. That's part of the business. And so therefore they have this equipment that can lift extremely heavy loads to put those platforms or to take those platforms away. And as easily you could put on a platform for an offshore oil or gas well, well, you can put in an offshore fixed platform. So that's what they've been doing is continuing to grow out their footprint, which is a logical extension of the business they're already in and repurposing the equipment they have. Now, they, in addition to that first acquisition, or they're buying out their partner, they then a number of years later bought out another business that does the cable installation. So it runs the umbilicals toward these offshore platforms, takes the electricity away to shore. So all of that cabling and uh, subsea pipe play, they do with this other piece of the business. And then two years ago, they also merged with another Norwegian public company called OHT that has equipment that brings jackets from the Middle East. I mean, sorry, from uh, from Asia, where they're, most of them are fabricated and brings them to wherever you're installing the offshore wind. And then also has equipment that uh, lifts the turbines and puts it on top of the tower once it's been installed. So what they've done is they've built out a fully integrated service offering to do fixed offshore wind, which is, that's not the way that business has been. It really has been piecemeal that you would do all these pieces. And historically, in their own business, they can do an offshore installation of oil or gas field, which is much more complex, and uh, have the equipment and expertise to do that. And it's a one-stop shop. You give them the business. They do the engineering. They do the procurement of the equipment. They do the installation equipment. So they're a contractor that does all those works. And now they can do the same thing in wind. And they're probably one of the fewer competitors that has a full offering and therefore can do effectively a soup to nuts kind of opportunity. So- that's a you know it's a good part of the backlog they have, and clearly that business has extremely great growth, especially since you got the high price of fossil fuels are really driving up energy costs, and so therefore it's making it economic. You know one of the ways to accelerate the renewable businesses, you know the traditional business is more expensive. Cost becomes a clear motivator in that process. So so they've been opportunistic, and they've been able to, starting with a small piece, build out that business and make strategically intelligent acquisitions. Uh, and actually, they're doing even more right now because they have recently agreed to participate in a rights offering to raise $200 million of equity for Seaway 7. That's their control subsidiary in this business. 
They also are um, lending $300 million from sub C7 to Seaway 7. They also are guaranteeing $150 million loan. So there's a substantial financing package that is going in to further build out that wind turbine installation business uh, uh, of Seaway 7. And I think that's part of it too, is that today, offshore wind more and more is being done by oil majors who are their historic customers also. So therefore they already have a relationship with that customer and that, so that new construction firm that does the full uh, offshore wind business is our people they do business with on a regular basis and like that one-stop shop, fully integrated offering in that process. So I think you, you briefly alluded to it earlier, but I'm curious, why does, why sub C7 now? Why does this opportunity exist to begin with? Yeah. So, 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 so as, as good as the opportunity is in offshore wind and it is, there's strong growth. Uh, the business has changed. Uh, so uh, last year, uh, which is interesting because Seaway 7 itself is probably an extremely compelling investment, right? There's a street analysis on the company that have an underweighting on it and have concerns because they have a couple of contracts where they've lost money. And so they, they, they said that six months ago, they say, yeah, we have a couple of problem contracts. We've taken losses on those. We'll be done with those contracts by the end of the year. So all of the, we think those operational issues are behind it. But in that process, what they also realize and determine is the way we design the contracts doesn't make sense <clears throat> because the no matter where you are, even if it's a relatively benign ocean environment, there's a lot more ocean activity than one thinks of. And so therefore, when you can work, how often you can work is different. And understanding that for nine months, they really hadn't bid on new contracts. And because that's what they've done is they've gone back to all of the people who have new offshore wind contracts and said, these are the terms and conditions we're going to have. These are the requirements for costs and how it works. This is how much is a pass through. So therefore, it's not our cost. So therefore, increasing costs will be you will pay for that. So that those changes have been made. And we really think the, the business has matured and there's an understanding that they have for the historical business in terms of how to do these things offshore, which are engineering-wise much less complex, right? If you're talking about a fixed offshore wind platform, you're talking about relatively shallow waters, as opposed to their core business, they're installing things in 5,000, 6,000 feet of water, right? The subsea surface is not a sandy bottom that's smooth. There are mountains and all kinds of activity below. How to install all of that, how to get the piping to bring the controls to control all those offshore uh, um, wellheads, and then to bring that to the surface and then connect it to a floating platform is extremely complex engineering. So this is a much less engineering complex business. Uh, so therefore they clearly have the capability and got up the learning curve sooner. The cost of offshore wind is going up. And that is not only the contract terms that they have are different, but People like Siemens Gamsia who make the turbines, if you look at their earnings in the last two years, right this year, they're losing money and it's a dramatic amount of money they've lost. And that's what it is, is costs of materials have definitely gone up. And so that hadn't been incorporated into the original bids and how they price things today and how they bid it. Once again, a company like Siemens is now saying there's cost plus escalators are going to go to you. It takes time to deliver these things. There's a different cost structure, we thought. So cost of the turbines cost more, the cost of the installation costs more. So all of these things are identified already as 
you know, that's reversing a trend because the trend had been in renewables, the costs kept, you know, have gone down for 20 years. So I think that there's a maturity in that business that's actually causing some cost hiccups that will on a fixed offshore wind business, the cost of those things are going up. I see the elements because I see who the players are who are providing those those uh, services and those that, that equipment, and that's all gonna cost more money. So that's part of the equation. And how quickly you can ramp up that activity, you know, is again, a physical limitation. And when you install an offshore wind platform, what do you do? You take huge amounts of cement, big CO2 produces when you make cement. You put huge amounts of steel on it, that's a fundamental material. You have those turbines on it that have copper, wiring, rare earth minerals, you know, everything that we know, is already in kind of uh, high demand. And so, and the availability of some of those things is problematic, how it plays out. So all of the cost elements are going up. Uh, and so therefore offshore wind will take, and once you ramp up activity, inevitably in anything where you've got ramped up activity, things happen, delays happen, slowdowns happen, there's integration issues. So offshore wind, you know, we think is 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 increasing, but, but now, the real opportunity in Sub-C7 is not in that business, because I think, yes, they'll make good margins in that business, but they won't make the margins because that business doesn't have the barriers to entry. They're core businesses, and that is to develop offshore oil and gas fields. And there, the competitive landscape is extremely positive today and, and really interesting, and they're positioned, we think, better than anybody and differentiated from most, and therefore, that's where the real opportunity is in the core traditional uh, business. So that's All what right, makes well, me about it. Right. Why, let, let's get into it now. We have this as a follow up yeah. later. Why is the competitive landscape so much harder? Why are the bar- excuse me, why are the barriers to entry so much larger in the oil and gas part? And why does Subsea have that advantage? And uh, that's an evolution of something that happens over time. That is also accelerated by the fact that you've had since 2014, uh, an extended period of time of extreme financial difficulty in the industry. If you look back at 2013, 2014, the number of competitors, there probably were five or six different large competitors, and there were 15 other smaller competitors, and people were getting into the business. So, for example, there's a company that was formed, Siona, was formed by Goldman Sachs. They raised money, they hired management from the top companies. They built a brand new vessel at the top of the market and set up the business and then never got a contract because an oil and gas company said, okay, show me your portfolio of doing a billion dollar contract, installing the stuff in 5,000 feet of water. You don't have that. I know you got the, the vessel that theoretically can do it. I know you have the people who did it for another company. I know you have, well, you don't have it. And so Goldman and others had gotten into the business. And then what happens is once that business turned, you know, that business was liquidated out. That vessel is now was bought for a fraction of what it was built for. And it's kind of still tossing around in the industry. McDermott bought that uh, thing. But the number of competitors, people have gone away, gone through bankruptcy. Sub-C7 bought a company called Emos that was a joint venture with, uh, um, <clears throat> um, I forget, the Japanese company that had put money into it. And just couldn't, the business couldn't run. So what they did was they bought the spool base, they bought the equipment that got them into the Middle East where they weren't before. And they bought that for $100 million, which was a fraction of what those assets were worth. So in the downturn, right, Sub-C7 not only saw a significant number of competitors go away, it was able to acquire assets at extremely discounted and distressed valuations, as were some of its competitors able to do. Today, there are four companies 
that kind of can do most of these contracts that can bid on them. And two of those are troubled still financially today. One of them is McDermott, and the other one is uh, Saipan. Saipan's controlled by an, the Italian uh, uh, government and just recently did a rights offering that the government had effectively backstopped because the investors didn't want to invest in it. Uh, and uh, so it's still financially troubled. So you have two financially troubled competitors and you have two well-financed competitors. And the other one is a company called Technip FMC and Subsea 7. So first off, the number of people in the industry today is a fraction of what it was. And you've really got it down to, there's maybe four people, but there's really an oligopoly. So you have only two people. Importantly though, the business has fundamentally changed in how you deliver your service offering. So instead, because that's what the historical problem, one of the problems with the business is you would do the engineering after that, an oil company would come to you with a project and say, well, listen, we want to develop this field and here's what we think we want. And uh, tell us what it's going to cost to do that. So now they've been able to convince the oil companies, like, wait a second, each one of you comes to me with your own uh, design and plan. Well, that really is, doesn't really make any sense. In addition, for 40 years, we've been doing these projects. So, and we have a breadth of knowledge from all of those contracts. Come to us and say, I have this field that I've discovered that I want to develop. I've got these four wells. This is what I think the reservoir looks like. I will tell you how to, how to build that field. I will put in standardization as opposed to you want everything designed from the ground up. That costs huge amounts of money. And so, so you, you, one of the things is, right, Subsea 7 does have this <clears throat> Subsea Alliance, which Schlumberger, that's a critical differentiator. Schlumberger is the highest quality, best uh, oil service company in terms of technology, knowledge, breadth, and capabilities. So they've joined together, they on the equipment side and Subsea 7 on the engineering and installation side, and therefore are doing comprehensive contracts where they say, we will tell you how to develop the field and we will tell you what to use and then we will standardize, but we will use technologies that only we have. And therefore that means the cost of that's going to be different. The time to develop it is different. Time to develop is critical because that means first oil and cash flow for you starts sooner rather than later. So the integrated alliance they have, the only competitor there is Technip that, that does the installation that merged five years ago with FMC that does the equipment. So those two companies merged and were the driver in changing that business. And the only competitor to that is Schlumberger didn't have the installation partnered a number of years ago with Subsea 7 to have an integrated offering. And that integrated offering substantially changes the cost and increases, it shortens the time. So since 2020, where they've done the integrated awards, 60 plus percent of the new contract awards by dollar amount have gone to the Subsea Alliance, Schlumberger Subsea 7. So they are winning the majority of the business. And why? Acre BP is a Norwegian-based company that in 2012 sanctioned the project in Norway, and there were five other projects sanctioned. In 12 and 13 and 14, the business was very active. Delays happen, cost overruns, all the things that happen when you have a significant ramp up in activity. They did an engineering study and said, 60% of the time we spent on engineering, we wasted. We're gonna need to do this integrated process. So they were an early mover who went to Subsea 7, and this company, Acre Solutions, a competitor to Schlumberger, and said, 
we're going to do a different project. We're going to work together, our guy and your two people together, and we'll engineer this and we'll then execute. And you're the only person we're going to go to. So we're not going to competitively bid it out because we think the efficiencies we get from working together. Ocker BP says <clears throat> that the time to develop a field has gone from 22 months to nine months. And the cost is 40% less than what it was before they had this integrated solution. So this integrated solutions really do also increase the size of the opportunity because they make fields economic. Because if you could develop it for less money in a shorter period of time and start to generate cash flows and reduce the risk of a stranded asset, that's a dramatic improvement for the oil company. So they want to work with the people who can do integrated solutions. That's technique, that's sub C7 in the Alliance and sub C7 in the Alliance are winning most of those contracts. So that's a fundamental change to the business with a huge barrier to entry because McDermott or Saipam tried to do the same thing and were unsuccessful in partnering up with someone that has won any awards. So therefore you really have, we think, a duopoly in big, large, complex projects. And the larger the dollars, the bigger the fields, those are the ones that the Alliance is winning. So that's, that's, a, uh, that's a huge differentiator that changes the business. That's what it is. We try to invest in cyclical businesses. We think there's an opportunity that you change the paradigm. You change the business. And therefore, one of the you know, questions that people will ask is, well, what's the earnings power of this business? We'd suggest that you can't look at historical information to make that determination. So it's somewhat difficult. <clears throat> and, and, and that's our experience. So uh, the last 10 years, we've been extremely successful investing in businesses related to home building. So in 09 and 10, the industry, of course, imploded. There were opportunities. There's been right-sizing, downsizing, tremendous consolidation. And the company we identified was a distributor that we thought had a different offering than its competitors. And that one company today has consolidated four of the top five large companies, is by far the largest uh, provider, but, but also delivers very differentiated service doing components. So there's, there's another situation where we identified a company that we thought was changing the nature of the, the, the service offering that, that took it from being a, a competitive business with fragmented owners into a handful at most and one or two people at the top who are, have a very different business model than the rest of the industry does and very different profitability, barriers to entry, sustainability, all of those things. And we think the same thing is here unfolding in Sub-C7. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right. Well, 
that leads to the next question, Ryan. We should save the board of directors one to the end. Yeah, uh, I want so to ask. Hit him, but do you have a follow up here? Yeah. So you mentioned the big differentiator there, and I guess anytime there's a conversation around um, energy based companies, you hear the cliche: high prices are the cure for high prices. And if if the high prices come along, it's going to attract more competition. Is that differentiator that you talked about there going to? Will that prohibit competition? <laughs> Oh, absolutely. There's this. There's uh, there's no there's nobody who's going to be able to build <clears throat> like Goldman tried to build a competitor when the playing field was a lot lower and the ease of entry a lot uh, easier. They, they were unsuccessful. Someone coming along today to try to get and integrate and and it was built together. So Technip merged with FMC. So you already had two companies that for thirty years had been in the business who were the you know top of their individual pieces put that together so to so it's not just one piece you got to build you got to build multiple pieces in addition right sub c7 and the, the alliance just recently announced that ocker solutions is actually merging their business in to schlumberger and that alliance and sub c7 is actually putting in 300 million dollars of new capital own 10 percent to that joint venture so one of the other equipment providers has been incorporated in, and it also widens the breadth of of expertise. So it's not just installing to do the development of the field to produce, it's also subsea processing. So there's the life of the field. So not only do you want to develop the field, but you also want the maximum recovery over the 20 years that you produce in that field. And inevitably, there's work that you do at various times because something happens. A well has a problem, the production starts to peter out, salt builds up, sand builds up, wax is built up, you need to go out and service the wells. So therefore, you need, or you need to inject something in to pull out more oil. And so subsea processing is part of it, the separation. So you don't need to build a larger floating platform. So subsea processing is a critical service uh, and equipment differentiator. And Acker and uh, Schlumberger have further improved the, the product offering and eliminated a competitor in the process. So there's one fewer company that you could possibly have as one of the building blocks to put together to have that competitor. So that's one of the barriers. The other barrier though, more important that I think is true, that's we. so that's what we do think. It, uh, not only do we think energy is at this inflection point, but we also think that a lot of basic industrial businesses are old economy businesses that everybody that have gone through an extended period of time, decades even of poor returns. And so therefore we think there's really substantial changes to those businesses that have occurred. And yet there clearly is an, a concern about the environment and CO2, you, whatever it is, environmental impact is something today that clearly is a more important consideration and a mitigating factor. So today our view is the historic problem in the oil and gas business is the cure for high prices is high prices, right? High prices means high profits. High profits means new capital comes running in. The fact of the matter is between the barriers to entry, but more importantly is, well, what's the life of this asset? Am I going to go build a vessel that's going to run for 30 years? I don't know what oil is going to look like in 20 years from now. So how do I do that? Or if I build a vessel, what vessel do I build? Because that vessel today potentially uses diesel, but they're installing electric or they're looking to put in LNG. So therefore, the power source that you have of these vessels is different than what it was in the past. So the environmental concerns and the barriers to do things today are very different than historically have existed. So the sustainability, we think in many businesses, old industry businesses, 
We're invested in a business called Westlake Chemical. We think, you know, that's uh, the podcast I did with, with Andrew Walker. I talked about the company. They make a thing called chloralkalide. Chloralkalide is a, what you do is you take huge amounts of electricity and you put it with salt and you make chlorine and caustic soda. To build a, a new chloralkalide plant is a difficult thing to do. Who wants to build a chloralkalide plant? It's a, you know, and, and where can you build it? Because the other part of energy is the demand for energy and the failure to kind of bring on new supplies in the bulk of the business, and that is the fossil fuel component means we're short of energy. And But North America is different than the rest of the world, right? In North America, we have a reasonable amount of oil, but we have an overabundance of natural gas and we have an overabundance of coal. And of course, you know, those are two critical elements that mean, and natural gas is interesting because coal, you can put in a ship and move. And so therefore the market, the worldwide market equilibrates. Natural gas, you can't do that quickly, right? It takes three to four to five years to build the, the liquefaction of that gas at source, the ships to transport that, the facility that can take it from uh, the liquid back into the gas, all of that three different pieces of the infrastructure all have to be built out. There's a significant timeline to build those out. And so natural gas in North America sells at a fraction of what it does in the rest of the world, rest of the developed world. The Middle East sells even less than in America, but there's no developed economies there. And therefore they still have to get it out too. And that's what they're in the process. So, so for, we think five to 10 years, North American industrial and energy intensive businesses are advantaged because they have an energy cost that's going to be less than the world's competitor price. And so, the, you know, that's, that's, we think a really interesting macro because that's, so we also talked about that macro, who the hell knows the macro. And of course we basically don't know what the hell the macro is either, but I think we have actually windows into certain pieces of it, the industries we know, because um, there's a guy, Theo Vandermeer, uh, who coined the phrase grassroots macroeconomics. So by understanding a particular business, you do understand the macros associated with it. And therefore it can give you some understanding as to, oh no, this is a very likely economic outlook for the next three to five years. And so therefore we think there is visibility in our businesses because things don't change. These are long dated businesses that take lots of capital and time to kind of change the supply and demand factors. And therefore there's predictability for an extended period of time. And that the environmental concern means the cure for high prices is in necessarily high prices, or that is substantially deferred because of the environmental impact of building out those businesses. Right. All right. Let's, I'm going to combine these two questions here because I think they're really the exact same. Let's put some numbers behind this. How do you value subsea stock today? Maybe give, I don't know, any sort of earnings projections you guys put together and why do you think gross margins could trend higher? Because I think one thing that any first time someone looks at this, they're going to say the gross margins on this business look bad. They're higher previously, but will that come back? And if so, why do you guys think that? Yeah. And, and again, I'm going to revert back to, no, the, the industries like this are fundamentally going through radical changes. And and to think you understand the business based on historical results is a mistake. You, right. you, you kind of can't. And that's what we saw in, in you know the distribution business for home building. It fundamentally changed. And the longer the difficult time, the more that accelerated change because what you could do and how you could differentiate yourself. And that's the same thing here. So we think to to it. Now, subsea seven, 
I, uh, you know, so, so before Sub-C7, we were invested in a company that was Acergy, because that's what it was. In 2011, Acergy merged with Sub-C7. So the three and the four player merged to become the number one player. So therefore, we were in it then. And uh, Acergy used to be a thing called Stolt Offshore. So in 1995 is when we first invested in Stolt Offshore. So we've been invested in the industry, you know, that extended period of time. So that's the window that we have in terms of this business and how it is fundamentally changed. Right. The, uh, another critical thing of how the business has fundamentally changed. Ten years ago, the business was an oil development business. Today, at least a third of the business is developing uh, gas fields. And so that's an incremental new space for a business that in the past, that's what it was. You know, what's the old uh, Woody Hayes right, uh, at Ohio State was famous because they would never throw the ball because he said, when you throw the ball, you know, only one, two things, three things can happen and only one of them is good. And so therefore we don't want to do that. And so here in the oil and gas business, it's kind of the same thing. If you drill the well, any place, but definitely offshore, if it was a dry hole, that was no good. Okay. If it was an oil well, oh, potentially that's good if it's big enough and I can develop it. I drill a gas well. What the hell am I going to do with gas in the middle of nowhere? That's, that's, that's not worth anything. So gas was not something that could be economically developed. The world's a different place today, right? LNG is a big part and a growing part and a critical in the next 10 years to how do you get affordable energy is going to be the development of offshore fields. So that's what's happened is discoveries that are offshore Mauritania, there's no onshore gas market in Mauritania. So theoretically, that's not economic. But someone's willing to sign a 20-year contract to take that gas from Mauritania in Asia someplace to therefore have dependable, reliable supply of natural gas. So, so you have a much bigger opportunity set. The, the, the addressable market is radically larger than what it was. Um, and so that's, that's, a, that's a differential component too. But, but, but the, as I say, it's those barriers to entry that therefore mean there are fewer people who will be able to deliver the services that sub-C7 can. And so therefore, the margins will not be equal to, but I have a very strong conviction higher than they were. Um, and what now the other part of the earnings are there are like probably five elements that determine margins in, in sub-C7. The first one is uh, what's the contract and what's the contract terms? Of course, what's the contract terms are really critical too in terms of what's the working capital requirements and what's the pass-through in terms of cost increases. Um, but then a critical element is what happens? What are the work order changes that happen to that contract? So once it gets awarded, okay, I'm going to develop the field and you're going to drill 15 wells and uh, some of those are producers and some of those are injection wells and I'm going to tie in each one of those wells to the surface and do all of that work. You do that based on the four wells that you drilled. And therefore, based on that, you have a model for what you think the reservoir looks like and what's recoverable. Then you go drill those other 11 wells that you need to produce the field. When you drill those other 11 wells, you get incremental information that says, well, the field's different than what I thought. And therefore, instead of us doing this, if we do this, we can have higher recoveries, better economics, quicker payback. And so therefore you moderate the contract. And so therefore those changes, therefore there's no, that's not a competitive environment. The only one who's going to do the change order or you. And so therefore that's a negotiation process between you and the operator in terms of, okay, what's the incremental dollars and margins associated with it? And those margins tend to be much higher as you make changes to the contract. A third element that's critical is 
okay, I have pieces of equipment and I move these right now, it's 34 vessels. I move around the world where I need it to do what work. The closer the density of the work as it builds out, well, the efficiencies I get, because I can move that vessel, not on that contract, I can move it to this one and have a lower cost vessel do that work or do three pieces of work before it moves to this location. So the optimization, the efficiencies that you get in terms of the physical plant radically improve as the business goes up. The other fundamental piece is that the industry today is in very tight supply. So therefore, there are contracts today that you see only two of the four top guys bidding on because the other two guys don't have equipment, aren't interested, you know, don't have availability at that time period. So as the activity level continues to ramp up, it becomes tighter and tighter, the project uh, capability and who can bid on it. So the bidding process starts to change and the costing starts to change and the margins start to change. So I, I have a high conviction that the size of the addressable market is larger than what it used to. But few, there are substantially fewer competitors. There's substantially more differentiation in terms of the top two competitors and what they can do. And one has technologies that apply to one field to develop and the other has technologies for the different field. So therefore they probably, you know, you bid that one because you have a suite of offerings that I don't have. I bid this one because I have a suite of offerings that you don't have. So therefore in, in contracts, it becomes an extremely uncompetitive situation. So, and then in addition, of course, you have the incremental business that you are doing for offshore wind that you were doing next to nothing the last time you had really good margins in this business. At the same time, you did all, you made those acquisitions in the downturn. You built, that's what they, and that's what they did, right? Over the last number of years, they spent $2.7 billion to renew the fleet. They have a fleet that could do anything and everything and can do a lot more work and you don't need to spend anything on new capital. Uh, the business in this difficult period, right, also paid like $520 million of dividends. It bought back over $300 million worth of stock. Today, it has no net debt. So going through an extremely difficult period where competitors went out of business and two of their competitors are still financially troubled today. This company is in strong financial position and making commitments because they see the industry is at this inflection point and the business is taking off and therefore putting capital to work because they have access to that capital. So, uh, you know, it's, uh, we think, you know, the earnings power of this business has been transformed by what's, you know, really gone on over the last number of years, difficult times in the consolidation. Sounds like a, a good formula for success there. Last question, I guess, on sub C7 specifically. Um, you, well, maybe, maybe management. I don't know. Yeah. What, what, what do you think of management? What do you sounds think like, like I mean, it sounds like they have a great track record. But. Yeah. And maybe some of the capital allocation over the years. Yeah. So, so that's what, you know, a critical element when we look at these investments too, was like, okay, so who, who are the owners and who are the managers and how does that work? And we think we have a business that has products and services that have the capability to be different. A part of that is to leverage difficult times, to be opportunistic, to grow out that earnings uh, power of that business when things are available for much less than they can be acquired if you have to build them. And so that's what Sub C7 did. It did many different things. And that's because, you know, we love the, whole, the, the jockey here. So the jockey here is Christian Seum. So Christian Seum has a holding company called Seum Holdings. It owns over 25% of sub C7, uh, and therefore he controls the board. He controls management. Management is a meritocracy. When he merged together sub C7, which he had controlled for you know, its inception, 
with Acergy, which he did not control, but he had been looking to merge with that business. He had the guy running Acergy run the entire company. So again, it was not his guy because it was the CEO. It was Jean Cahuzac was a better manager and therefore more capable. Therefore, he became the CEO. So therefore, there's a meritocracy that you have from an owner who's an owner who's looking to generate capital returns. He's also looking to generate capital returns. So therefore, how they position the company, what they do, how they deploy capital, all things that he's grown out the earnings power of this business, the breadth of the business. So that's a really important thing. So uh, board, ownership, management are differentiators that really are more because Technip FMC has had all the same things. And we think today is a good competitor, but we don't think is anywhere near as good a competitor. And you'll see that in margins. Subsea7's margins are better and will be better than what Technip's uh, uh, margins are. Okay, maybe one last question. Kind of want to invert it. What would it take for Subsea7 to be a poor investment? Like how how could this turn out to not go the way you think it could? Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> see, uh, 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 I could see uh, external events happen that you just don't anticipate, right? If you had asked me in 2019, I would have said Subsea 7 was a really interesting investment. It's really going to do well. The business is improving. It, it's going to have you know earnings by 2022 that are going to be you know higher than they've ever been before. The stock's trading at, you know, a low single digit PE multiple, obviously it would have been wrong, right? That, uh, you know, we had COVID, the world slowed down and all those things happened. So, you know, things, external things definitely can happen. Uh, of course, external things can happen that probably also fundamentally, so fundamentally change the business. So I would say that there's a fundamental change that's happened in the business, right? So um, the, the analogy in my mind is 1973 and the oil embargo, right? So what happened was, of course, there was a war in the Middle East and the Middle Eastern countries were shipping oil to the West, specifically the United States, and decided to withhold deliveries. And therefore, the cost of oil went from $3 a barrel to $12 a barrel. And so people will say, oh, it's the 70, uh, the 73 war that caused the price to go up. Of course, it wasn't the 73 war. It was the fact that 15 years before that, the United States production had been declining. The United States importation of oil from the Middle East and that dependency had grown large and there was no alternative. And so therefore, someone was able to use a lever and it was a tipping point where they did that. Today, I would suggest that energy across the world is in strong demand. Availability is limited. Right. And it's limited for many reasons. Right. Over the last five, six years, the business has been a poor business. Capital has been reinvested by the people in it because there's no returns in it because the commodity price has been low. So therefore, you didn't reinvest in the business. Of course, there's also a concern about the environmental impact, which is real. And, you know, therefore, that's constrained and moderated the activity and the reinvestment in these businesses that deplete resources. They are finite depleting resources. And so, that, you know, that that situation has kind of developed this opportunity. So from 2019 to today, I would suggest to you that the earnings power of subsidy seven is probably higher today than what it was then, because in that delayed process, it didn't change the fact that, and we've actually moved this further along to our dependency on, and the lack of uh, activity to bring on new supplies. And so therefore, if some external event happens, it can defer the realization of this event, but that's what we also find is the deferral isn't the elimination and the deferral means further consolidation, further opportunities for the strong, well-managed to further improve their earnings power and the potential of the business. So I, I frequently say 
2025, I will have a better investment if for the next two years, this business is, is difficult. If I, and therefore, of course, that means the stock will underperform over that period of time. But that underperformance of the stock means the economic competitive position of that company and its earnings power is substantially improved. And therefore, I will have a better investment in 2025 to the extent that I do that. So, so it, it's the same thing. You know, there are things that could delay this, that delaying, I, I think, would further increase the earnings potential of the business and the dramatic opportunity. Makes sense. Do you have any more questions on sub Okay. I, I want to ask one more question. It's not about sub C7, but you've been investing for a long time and you've seen a lot of different environments. We have a pretty young, generally young investor base. What's, what's one piece of advice you have for anyone that's kind of starting in the investment world today? Yeah. I think it's an extremely interesting and difficult time for younger people, right? Because what I, what, you know, our observation is, that um, uh, you know, post the financial crisis, we've lived in a world that's a total anomaly, and people and it, but an anomaly that lasted so long. It lasted a decade, and then it lasted two more years because the beginning of COVID further delayed any changes. So you have a twelve-year period where you have this economic environment that people, based on experience, say, "Well, I know how the world works, and I know these things, and I know investing, and I know these things." having lived through a unique period in American financial history, in world financial history. You know, it's a period of time where it was an extremely low growth for an extended time period. You had very low inflation rates. You had low, no negative interest rates, something you hadn't seen that we've never seen in mankind. It's a once in a thousand year event. You just lived through and invested in a period of time that was a once in a thousand year event. And that's the experience you have on which you have an investment framework. That investment framework was anomalistic economic environment. And as much as you know, we don't know the economic future, the economic future for the next 10 years is going to be very different than the last 12 years. That's what we think. We think, we think here's the analogy we have. For 12 years, every investment, how do you figure out an investment? First, you figure out the risk-free rate of return. And then you figure the risk associated with the investment that you have, that you want to have a risk premium on it to get your return, right? So I would submit to you that for easily a decade, there is no, what's the risk-free rate of return? Is it the 10-year treasury? The 10-year treasury over most of the decade lost money, right? Inflation was 2% and the 10-year treasury was 1.5%. So you're losing money. You're not losing money in your pocket, but you're losing purchasing power. So that's not a risk-free rate of return. When you invest and you lose money, you're guaranteed to lose money. And that's happened for a year, for a decade. So people built a foundation of investment on a bad foundation in the wrong place. And what's happened, of course, in the last two years is people see inflation kind of happening. You know, of course, they probably think, oh, that old guy, Rabati, he's, he's what well, he grew up and he started, he saw inflation. And but inflation's dead. And that's what people said two years ago. And that's that's not individual investors, right? The consultant, you know, the the, the investment committee that I'm on for the university that has a high-paid, well-known consultant. When I said two years ago, what investments do we have that protect us in case there's inflation? He said, not happening. There is no such thing as inflation. Inflation's dead. And, and you can't get in, in anyway, because like, what would you invest in? Oil? That's not an inflationary hedge. And I said, well, actually, you're kind of right. I agree with you that oil is not necessarily an inflationary hedge. Oil is predicated on the supply and demand, right? The supply and demand it really dedicates the price. And so you could have an inflationary environment and not have an oil price increase and you have a decrease. But 
Conversely, cause effect, if you do get much higher oil prices because you have been underdeveloping that and it is in short supply and high demand, prices will go up. And if you have prices going up, then you have inflation. And so therefore, it's the causality. It's not the result of inflation. And therefore, that's the protection. If you can invest in materials in short supply, that potentially is an inflation hedge. So, so the, the inflation, and that's what's really happened in the last two years, right? Inflation's happened. There's, uh, we see that. We know that. And now the market is still invested on the presumption that inflation will come down, on the speculation that inflation will come down. Because, you know, even today with a 4%, 4.5% 10-year treasury, if inflation's 8.5%, you're losing 4.5% every year on that investment. That's not a risk-free rate of return. And if the if it ends up that inflation rate ends up being 6%, well, the 10-year treasury needs to be 7.5%. Where the hell is 7.5% on the 10-year treasury? And that's the foundation. That's the risk-free rate of return, the foundation. So I say that there's a tornado that's hit the financial markets. And Dorothy's house, the risk-free rate of return is not in Kansas anymore. <clears throat> And I don't know where it's going to end up because nobody knows where inflation is going to end up. And that will determine where the house lands and therefore what's the risk-free rate of return that therefore you need to figure out your investment. But I also think is when that house lands, you want to be in a different house because the economic environment is not going to be the benign environment it was for 12 years. And it's a very different place. And if you were in the house you were in, that could be the wrong house for the next 10 years. So... I do think that people have, and that's professionals too. And that's, that's what I say. Professional money is the same thing. The, the puck was down one end of the, the ice. If you wanted to outperform the market, you had to be invested in the US. And if you're invested in the US, you had to be invested in the S&P. That's no other market. You can't outperform that. That was the place to be. What happened? All the capital moved to that end of the ice. It all went there. The only way to outperform the S&P 500 was to have the, the NASDAQ index, the QQQ, which was a higher concentrated of just the winners of the S&P. And so yeah. therefore, all the, all the capital's there. And that's what we think today, the opportunities in those old economy companies that have consolidated a radically different businesses they are, they have Buffett-like attributes, barriers to entry, sustainability, high cash flows, strong balance sheets, so Buffett-type businesses, and they're available at gram valuations. So it's the price of a cigar bud. It's a single digit PE multiple, but a company has net cash on the balance sheet that's buying back 10, 20% of its outstanding shares, therefore increasing the earnings power per share over the next three to four years. But nobody wants to invest in that because, oh, I know that business is a crappy business. you know. And, and there's a guy that I know who you see I used to work for, who is you know, a great investor. And he said exactly the same thing on one of the companies. He said, Four times earnings, net cash. Who cares? I know that business. That's a crappy business. I said, Mario, that, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the perception that keeps people away from things. And, and there, in my mind, there's an analogy. So when I entered the business in 1975, it was after the 1973-74 <clears throat> stock market crash. And what happened in the 73-74 stock market crash was it was the nifty 50, one decision stocks. You bought the stock. You just owned it. You forgot about it. So, you know, and that you can't go wrong owning that stock. And what happened in 73 was there was an oil embargo and the price of oil went up and inflation went from 3% to 
So suddenly you had inflation, you had these stocks that you know you just own, you just put away. Your valuation didn't matter. It was just a great company, no matter what it was. And so here, I think that there's potentially there's a replay of a lot of the same things kind of happening. And then Tweety made their reputation because from 75 on, they did really great. Because what were they investing in? They were investing in net networking capital businesses, right? And I could, I could do that. I was an accountant, a CPA. I could calculate book value. I can calculate net networking capital. Now, any business that you can buy for less than net networking capital is clearly a pretty lousy business, right? But nobody wanted to invest in those lousy businesses because it's a lousy business. But the valuation was disconnected and provided the opportunity. That's what it is in a lot of these old economy companies today. The valuation is dramatically different than what you see other places. The, the financial strength of these businesses is vastly different. But nobody cares, at least for the time being. It'll take a couple of years for it to play out, for these things to therefore demonstrate, no, that the economic and their economic fundamentals, the present value of the future cash flows are, is a multiple of where these stocks trade for today. I mean, what are we, uh, for any listeners that maybe, I don't know, doubting that, I mean, what do we see Buffett buying today? Occidental Petroleum, that's his base, you know, his, his latest Buffett, huge but, investment. But it's okay, because Buffett, so I, I said I really like Christian Seam, and that's a critical part of the element of this really positive thing. And it was a book written by uh, on Christian uh, maybe two, three, four years ago, and they identified a lot of uh, operate owner operator managers that had phenomenal returns over time, and Christian was one of the guys they identified. And of course, what happened is though, you know, uh, you know, paraphrasing Buffett's comment about you know when a when a when a bad business meets a great manager, it's the business that keeps its reputation. <clears throat> when a great manager goes through a period of time of extended poor economic environment for his business, his reputation gets tarnished. Because he's making the right decisions, but you know there's a difficult macro environment that he kind of can't control. He can then make movements to adjust to that, continue to position his company so that eventually he will. So Christian's reputation has been damaged because in the last three, four, five years, he had to restructure one of his companies in bankruptcy. So therefore, the environment was not conducive and therefore caused problems. And I see that. I see a lot of managers who really are good managers, quality people who the environment give them a difficult situation and they, you know, they were protected, but it was extended and long enough where their reputations are tarnished. Buffett's reputation is somewhat tarnished. You know, that people plenty of times will say, oh, he lost it. He doesn't have it anymore. And he's, you know, he's gone, he's old hat and whatever else. So, so, uh, so and I, I don't, uh, you know, so, right. What's the phrase, the phrase uh, when, when, when Graham wrote security analysis, right. Which is the, you know, the, the core piece of the beginning of value, uh, value investing. What's the quote? He has a quote from Horace, right? And it is, where the hell is it? There it is. <clears throat> those who have fallen shall be restored, <clears throat> and those in honor shall fall. <clears throat> it, so, <clears throat> so that's what it is, right? That's why I'm so excited today, because the rotation is such that it's happening. We're at the beginning of a huge rotation in where to invest capital. And that's what it is. That puck, that puck was down there. Everyone's down there. And they're all realizing maybe there's someplace else. They don't know where to go yet. And so here they are. And so that's what we're seeing. In my mind, we're seeing the restoration of stock pickers. Not only the, the old economy reviving, the restoration of stock. Stock picking is going to be a critical differentiator. And that's not just value investments or these things I'm talking about. It's growth, too. You know, anything that was a high growth company, clearly those stocks are going through a substantial you know, repricing. 
And some of those companies will be really good. And some of those companies will not be good investments. Just like when the 73, 74 financial uh, stock market crash happened, you know, the, the one, the 50, 50, some of those didn't make it. Most of them did, but some of them didn't. Today, there probably were more companies that had valuations that were uh, uh, really on the come that probably will have viability issues going forward. And there may be more losers, but you know, that, that adjustment's in the process of, of happening today. And, and, it's, and there's, a, there's a big analogy, I think, in terms of what happened in the nifty 50 right sizing and correction of where we are today. Okay. Well, I think that's all the questions we have. Um, I guess for any listeners that want to try to keep up with your thoughts, what's, is there one place that they could do that? Is there, do you post any of your analysis anywhere? Uh, yeah, I guess we, uh, well, we have a, <laughs> of course I'm dating myself as an old guy, right? Oh, we have a website and therefore we post some stuff on the website and I'm probably not so religious about posting it on the website and <laughs> I do some interviews and some of it gets there and some of it doesn't, you know, cause I'm more interested actually in talking to the managements and thinking about the businesses. And, you know, I am on the boards of four of the investing companies we have and going to board meetings and talking about the business and understanding the fundamentals, the breadth of knowledge and information that you get if you sit on a board and understanding the key pieces of the business and how it really runs. And then, you know, you get opportunities for the rest of the world too, because, you know, who's a supplier and who's a customer and what are they doing and how does they do that? So not only feeds information better on that investment that you have, but it also provides other opportunities that you can identify that someone's substantially mispriced in the marketplace. So that's a lot more fun to me than is being so good at writing articles and making sure they're posted and doing interviews. And, but I love talking about it because clearly I'm passionate about what we do. Yeah. And you have, that is you, clear. you have done some other interviews as well. So we'll, we'll maybe try to link to those also. That's right. There's a number of interviews that we've done in recent times because it's easy. It's again, it's easy for me to talk about something. It's harder to write down all the works and come to those. All right. Things. Well, thank you, Bob. We got to throw our disclosure on here. We want to remind listeners that Brett and I are not financial advisors. So anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or recommendation. We are, however, general partners at Arch Capital. So clients may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you all for listening. Thanks again, Bob, for coming on the show. Uh, but, but before you leave, uh, that, that's uh, so I do own over, I think I own over 1% of sub C7. I've been fully invested in it. It's one of the largest positions in my portfolio. So therefore, you shouldn't believe a word I say because I'm just talking up my own book. So that's true. <laughs> we'll put the disclosure at the beginning as well. Uh, okay, so great. No worries. Okay. No worries. All right. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time. Hey, Simon, we wanted to ask you a few questions about seven investing so listeners could get an idea of what they're getting. What inspired you to start the company and what exactly is seven investing? Well, hey, Ryan, thanks again for having me. You know, we, from years of working in the investing industry, it was inspired by conversations with people that would just always have kind of the same negative perception of the stock market, right? It's, it's too hard, or I don't have time for this, or this is stacked against me. And those conversations kind of led me to say, hey, we need to create a site that actually does inspire people to say, you can take control of your financial future. You can invest in stocks. You can find good stocks to buy and hold for long periods of time. And at the end of the day, too, we know that everybody is different. Um, we don't believe that there is one stock that 
fits for everyone, right? Maybe you're a, a dividend loving, you know, paycheck cashing uh, income investor that might want an option that's going to be a lower risk dividend paying stock, especially right now with the economy being what it is. Uh, and then other people might say, hey, you know, I'm ready to hold on for 20 or 30 years. I want to take some swings for the fences. Let's go after those high growth opportunities. And so I, I said, you know, this would be something that would be even more fun rather than just doing it educational and as and by myself. I said, what if I brought together a team of seven advisors, all with a diverse background and a diverse perspective of the stock market? So we could uncover more stones and look at a bunch of different stocks with a bunch of different investing styles and a whole bunch of different industries. And so seven investing is, is kind of the uh, the genesis of all of those that we started in uh, in March of 2020. And we said, let's look at a whole bunch of different stocks. Let's do the legwork of the analysis and let's present our seven favorite actionable ideas every month for investors to choose from. Now, let's start the conversation about which of these stocks is right for you and which one might be the right fit for your portfolio, knowing that investing is a very personal thing. All right. If you are a subscriber of 7investing, what do you get? Can you give an overview of what subscribers get? On the very first of every month, Brett, we release our seven new recommendations. So we are uh, coming up on October 1st here, at least in the recording of this. And you know, on October 1st, we'll release seven recommendation reports. Some of them will be low risk. Some of them will be high risk. Some of them will be biotech. Some of them will be financial services. We run the full gamut. And as a member, you get immediate access to all of the new reports. But you also get access to all of our old recommendations as well. We track all of them in real time on our scorecard at 7investing.com slash recommendations. And we also provide company updates on all of those previous recommendations as well. We check in on how things are going. And sometimes we even see red flags that we think people should be aware of. There's risks for any opportunity at the time that you recommend it. And sometimes it's really willing, it's really, it's really needed for investors to kind of understand the risk and reward relationship. And then the last part of it is in addition to issuing new recommendations and providing updates on them is we know that this is a long-term journey. We know that investing is something that we want to take uh, years, if not decades, to accomplish whatever we want to get to as, as the end goal. And so we always, every month, make it a point to be very available for our subscribers to ask us questions. We have a members-only call uh, right in the middle of every single month. We have a community discussion forum that we that we have available 24-7 to not only talk to our advisors, but also other investors. I think that's one of the key differentiators for 7investing is that, you know, we know this is a long-term journey. We know it's a very personal thing. We know they're going to have questions along the way. We don't want to just broadcast stock picks and disappear. We want to be here with you uh, throughout this entire journey. And you mentioned... So seven recommendations each month. Sometimes those might be repeats, but obviously there's a lot of companies now in the seven investing universe. So how do members get a grasp on the the advisor's conviction around certain ideas? Like which ones do do they are do they have a way of knowing which uh, whether advisors like certain ones more? That's the most common question we've gotten actually since we started is what's your favorite ideas right now? You know, we've done the diligence on almost 200 unique companies now and put them on the scorecard and people would say, hey, this is too much to keep up with. How do I even know where to start? And so we've kind of uh, evolved as, as a company. You know, one thing that we've started doing is best buys every month. Each advisor gets to pick any of their or another advisor's previous recommendations and put the flag on it that says, this is my best buy for October. And we publish those for subscribers. 
The other thing that we've started doing is issuing conviction ratings on companies that are also right there on the scorecard. So if you see a previous recommendation, we go everything from potential sell, which is the most negative flag we can put on a stock, to strong buy, which is the most positive bullish flag that we can mark things with. And you can filter through all of those to really quickly see here's some of our favorite opportunities. And we've taken this even one step further now, Ryan, which is we've created a strong buy portfolio where every quarter now we've gone ahead and self-selected as a team through a pretty methodical process, our 20 favorite ideas, our 20 highest scoring companies that we've collectively come up with, our favorites of the entire scorecard. And we put these into what we're calling a strong buy portfolio that we publish each quarter, also available as an added benefit for no extra charge for seven investing members. All right, last question here. What does it cost to become a seven investing subscriber? Uh, and as a, you know, we'll talk about, or we have talked about before, if you're a listener, use code money to get a hundred dollars off your annual subscription. That's right. Yeah. We do have a monthly option. You know, you can come in and check out the entire scorecard for a month just to see what you're looking at for $49 a month. Uh, but our most popular plan is actually the annual option because it's at a discount to that. Uh, in fact, we've got a discount on the discount, like you mentioned, Brett, uh, $3.99 for the year is our is our annual option price. But if you use money, the Chit Chat Money promo code, it's down to $300. So you're basically getting the, the subscription for half price if you sign up for the annual offer with that promo code. That does not expire after the first year. As long as you remain an active subscriber, you get to lock in that $100 off a year benefit. All right. Well, as he mentioned, use that code money. Thanks for joining us, Simon. Thanks very much for having me.